0: Welcome to AFT in Action, a podcast for members of AFT Connecticut affiliated local unions. We're approximately 30,000 working people in the public and private sectors, teachers and school support staff, nurses and healthcare workers, higher education faculty and public employees in nearly 90 unions across the state. The series provides a deeper dive into issues impacting our members and our movement as part of AFT Connecticut's engagement and communications
1: efforts. Welcome sisters and brothers to our latest episode of AFT in Action. My name is Jan Hockett. I'm the president of AFT Connecticut, and for this discussion, I've asked our vice president, John Brady, to join me as a co-host. So, John, I know it's um, hard to believe, but it's been more than five years that we've been working together. Um, I met you. We were both local presidents, and I was really impressed um, at when you were organizing your local, but also how you got your members to step up and support our brothers and sisters at L&M when they were on their courageous strike. That's part of why I asked you to be my running mate when I first ran for president of AFT Connecticut. And I'm so glad that you agreed.
2: And I'm glad I got uh, you asked me too, Jan, because it's been a quick five years.
1: Having you join me to help guide the conversation is a natural fit, regardless of the subject. But this is a topic that you've been particularly active on. It's the second of three discussions on what we're doing to protect our members and all working people from workplace violence.
2: That's right, Jen. We're following up on where you and your guests left off last time and talking specifically this time about federal protections needed in hospital and health settings.
1: To do that, we've invited a member of Congress who's championing this fight. Joining us is Joe Courtney, who has represented Connecticut's 2nd District since 2007, and before that served in our Connecticut State Legislature. So Joe, welcome to AFT in Action. We appreciate you taking the time to be here today and to answer our members' questions about this critically important topic.
0: Well, thank you, Jen, and I uh, appreciate the opportunity to just keep getting the word out, and you guys have been uh, you know, fantastic over the last, really, four or five years, so... Um Look forward to the questions.
2: Joe, the first thing I want to say is that how lucky I am that you're my representative in Washington from the 2nd District. Uh, my a- AFT colleagues from around the country are very jealous of me. <laughs> uh, the second thing I want to th- do is say thank you for uh, doing this podcast. And, but more importantly, thanks for the leadership on this issue. You've been a true champion for safe workers and safe care.
0: Well, again, the district um, is a big part of that because, um, you know, the issue is national, no doubt about it. And we'll talk about that, I'm sure, a little bit. But, um, you know, the fact is, is that it does take some, you know, external pressure to get things moving. And AFT uh, with your members um, have been a big part of that. Joe, can you share what motivated you to serve in public office in the first place? Sure. So, um, you know, I had the uh, experience to work at the state Capital. uh, Actually, when I uh, was doing an intern, um, and kind of got the bug as a result of that. Uh, Former Congressman, two times removed, Sam Mm Gadenson was a state legislator, and I worked for Sam when he was chairman of the labor committee. And you know, he actually did some really good things there in terms of uh, minimum wage, unemployment compensation, and um, you know, it just it was a very motivating, inspiring experience. Just that um, you really can make a difference. Mm -hmm. So uh, when the opportunity. Uh, Opened up to run for a seat in Vernon, where I'm from. Um, You know that that kind of was enough to you know really take the plunge. And public health committee was you know the committee that I you know picked from the first day I was in the General Assembly. We passed the uh, ConPace law. The prescription drug assistance for seniors. Literally, the first week I was in Congress, uh, it was a great accomplishment. We had a new majority uh, in the in the House at the time, and that really Connecticut was one of the first states in the country to provide a prescription drug plan for um, seniors, because that was always left out of Medicare at the time. And um, you know, and the public health committee was just an exciting place to be.
1: You serve on the Education and Labor Committee in the U.S. House of Representatives. Can you talk a little bit about what inspired you to seek that role?
0: Well, to me, it's the, you know, if you look at the jurisdiction of that committee, I mean, it deals with, um, you know, obviously access to education um, that the federal government, at the end of the day, I think is a guarantor for uh, at every stage from Head Start all the way to higher education. Um, in a state like Connecticut, which we're never going to drill for oil or mine coal um, <laughs> right, yeah. or anything like that or grow large commodity crops. I mean, education, in my opinion, is almost existential in terms of whether the state um, succeeds or not. And then the Labor Committee really is about fairness, ultimately. I mean, so, um, again, as, a, as another uh, freshman member back in 2007 when we had a new majority, uh, you know, we, we boosted the federal minimum wage, which unfortunately, sadly, has never been touched since. Mm-hmm. Um, And we passed a whole host of other measures on that committee, which, um, you know, affect uh, student loan rates. You know, we've cut the rates with the College Cost Reduction Act. Um, uh, You know, did a Head Start reauthorization, um, workforce, you know, job training. And, And, you know, to me, you know, this is... You know, really the meat and potatoes of of really middle class um, success for our country. And uh, I I mean, to me, I just love the committee, you know, when it's actually functioning. We Mm -hmm. went through a pretty bad dry spell there for eight (laughs) years where it was more about, you know, turning the clock back. But I think we're, we're really seeing some great movement again.
2: That brings us to today's topic, yes. workplace violence and health uh, and in social service settings. So the Education and Labor Committee has jurisdiction in this area, and you've in- introduced important legislation not once but twice to help protect healthcare professionals and social workers from assault. In our last episode, Jan, your guest, talked broadly about the issue and its impact on all industries, but it's a particular threat for nurses, health providers, and support staffs, and social workers. Can you talk about why it's so critical to combat workplace violence in this field?
0: So if we just allow this um, trend of healthcare worker violence continue to spin out of control, I mean at some point it's really going to affect the um, infrastructure of our healthcare system, which is very at the end of the day, hands-on, labor-intensive. I mean it really requires, um, you know human capital in, ter- in terms of making the system work. And um, as I said, it, these trends have got to be reversed. If And in, in, it's more than really just the, the workers themselves. It's really about just as a country, you know, about whether we're going to have a viable uh, future for, for health care delivery.
2: As you well know, and as Jan knows, in 2012, one of our nurses in our hospital was viciously attacked on an inpatient floor. She was working with a patient and the patient grabbed her gun that she used to scan her medications and beat her viciously over the head, um, resulting in several stitches in the emergency, blood running down her face, and she was so traumatized that she couldn't return to work. As far as I know, I don't think she's ever returned to nursing. When we investigated, we discovered that the same patient had shown signs of, of aggression on another floor. In fact, security had been placed on and off the door. But when he was transferred to this nurse's floor, she wasn't notified of the potential danger and security wasn't provided. Then we discovered that there's no OSHA standard to cover workplace violence, only a voluntary standard. And I appreciate what you said in Congress. You said something along the lines of the fact of the matter is that if a nurse slips and falls on a wet floor, it's required to be reported to OSHA and steps have to be taken to prevent it from happening again. But if they're beaten, bleeding, and traumatized, no report, no safety steps, no training, no security is required. It's just not right.
0: So when we uh, requested GAO to look at this problem, really about five or six years ago, um, because again, a lot of members of Congress were getting these sort of anecdotal stories coming in and, and hearing a lot about it, but there really was no sort of comprehensive analysis about what what's actually happening out there. The failure to have even just you know, record keeping of, of incidents and injuries um, is just a threshold issue that we've got to fix. Uh, again, you can take some uh, statistics in which GAO did out of crime reporting from the Justice Department. You know, from reporting of, of injuries and assaults, but anybody who talks to anybody in, in the healthcare field knows that you know a lot of times you know, when someone gets pushed, shoved, um, kicked or whatever, uh, it doesn't get reported, A, because there's sort of this culture or mindset that, you know, you got to just shake it off and keep going. Or what's the point of reporting it because it's not going to go anywhere. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, again, as you point out, there are other uh, types of injuries in the, in the job, in the workplace that are reported. And again, and OSHA does this across the board uh, because they at the end of the day, you have to sort of understand – you know, trends that are happening out there um, so that you can actually come up with real smart ways to prevent it. And, and this is not about, you know, trying to create lawsuits or, you know, line the pockets of trial lawyers or any of that kind of stuff. I mean, these are um, it's, it's really just it's all, um, you know, there's no identifications required. We just need to have, we need to understand, you know, incidents and events that are happening. And, and that's, again, just the first step in terms of what a new OSHA rule can accomplish.
1: So that brings us to our first member's question. Uh, Stephanie is a healthcare professional from East Lyme, and she called into our podcast answer line and asked what's being done to protect her and her co workers. So let's give a listen. I think it's outrageous that there's no federal standard for workplace violence in hospitals like mine. I've worked in a hospital for 18 years. I'm wondering if you can tell me what federal laws are in place to protect us from assault by. Could be a patient, or their relative, or even another staffer.
0: So uh, the only real, um, you know, law or, or regulation that's in place is a voluntary uh, standard, as as John mentioned. Which, um, again, OSHA um, is aware that something's happening out there. And back in the '90s, you know, they actually came up with some suggestions about ways employers could help um, control and prevent some of some of the workplace violence. Again, states have also. Uh, moved forward. There's about nine states that have actually put into place, including Connecticut, you know, about uh, requiring um, some baseline rules to to help prevent uh, workplace violence. So there's simple, almost common sense uh, changes that could take place where, uh, you know, employees are trained to basically be able to identify risk and and also about how to de-escalate situations which, uh, you know, would protect them. Uh, Frankly, there's ways you can train them into almost Mm self-defense, you know, to understand about ways to protect yourself, Uh, you know people who go into nursing or uh, medical school, I mean, you know, they didn't really go in there to learn martial arts Um, and and so, you know, training is obviously just a a key again almost threshold uh, requirement that should be uh, adopted in, in this sector. There's also um, you know, some ways that you can mitigate uh, injury by making sure people aren't alone right. a lot of times. And, uh, you know, we the case that John talked about and some other folks that came up from Connecticut uh, were individuals who were isolated with really dangerous people. Mm-hmm. And um, that obviously is, is requires some system to make sure that high-risk situations, people are not left alone. Office design, you know, there, there's ways of... of um, you know, making it uh, safer for people um, in situations. So, um, you know, bottom line is that um, there, there is sort of a, a, you know, sort of a early version of what the, these regs and rules would look like based on the voluntary standards that John mentioned. And then there's going to be a rulemaking process to kind of develop, um, you know, and flesh out uh, other strategies that have been used, best practices, to, to sort of help uh, make this happen. But until you get Congress and, and the labor department to, to really, you know, make it a standard that people have to comply with. You know, you're just going to continue to have this um, completely sort of sporadic, um, uneven system out there that just leaves far too many people vulnerable to yep. getting hurt.
1: So um, after listening to our previous episode, a member called in with a question on this very point. So let's hear from Sherry, who is a nurse from Quaker Hill. Our industry has the highest rates of workplace violence in the country. So obviously more must be done to protect us on the job. How would crime proposals help prevent assaults at hospitals like the one I work in?
0: When people are getting hurt uh, because of assaults uh, or um, you know other types of, of violence that are taking place that you know, this would have to go to OSHA, they would have to be reported, that um, they would hopefully also uh, receive at, at not, not just initial time of hire, but in regular basis, uh, updates and training in terms of ways to protect yourself. Um, and that, you know, again, there's just mitigation strategies that, that would help prevent um, injuries from taking place. Right now, I mean, when you're hired, you're just kind of on your own mm-hmm. out there right now. And, you um, you know, we, uh, we heard from one EMT worker who um, was saying that when she was eight months pregnant, uh, her doctor ordered her to stop going to work because yeah. they just yeah. were saying, you know, you're, you're just putting your, your baby at sure. risk in right. terms of, uh, you know, going out there and getting, you know, patients that just could, you know, and you're sort of in this enclosed space. So, mm-hmm. um, so you know, its bottom line is about creating a standard. Um, the bill would uh, require it to be within 42 months. And there's, uh, you know, like any rulemaking process, it's it's open up for comment. If people have reasonable concerns or suggestions, you know, you can accommodate them. I mean, this bill, by the way, is not one size fits all. It realizes that, you know, if you're in a, a psych hospital or, you know, behavioral health patients, frankly, there's going to be probably different systems sure. in place than there would be, you know, at a pediatric Clinic, mm-hmm. although again, the stories abound, you mm-hmm. know, yeah, across yeah. the board. So, I mean, it, it, this is required to some degree in, in every
1: setting uh,
0: from taking place.
1: So, to wrap it up, let's just drill it down into the process for making sure your bill becomes a law. So, Joe, what are the next steps in Congress?
0: So, again, first of all, just for your listeners, it's uh, the bill's uh, number House Resolution 1309. Uh, We introduced it back uh, earlier this year, had a a great hearing at the Education and Labor Committee and uh, AFT was in the room Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, participated uh, in that um, process as well. We reported it out of the committee. Um, and actually got a couple Republican votes, uh, which is encouraging. Yeah. Um, and uh, it is now uh, at the you know House Clerk's office awaiting uh, final action uh, in the House. In the meantime, you know we've been rounding up co-sponsors. Uh, 218 is the magic number in the House to pass a bill. We're at about 226 to 227. Mm-hmm. We've got about a half dozen Republicans or, or so that have uh, already come on board. I mean, there's a huge coalition. That's been out there calling members, uh, including obviously AFT, but you know the emergency room physicians, which mm-hmm. you know frankly tends to be a li- little bit more right of center in terms of their politics. Uh, but they, the, the the statistics they reported in terms of injuries to um, emergency room docs, mm-hmm. again it's like over 50% have experienced some act of uh, you know intentional assault that's happened out there. Um, Again, um, associations, uh, you know, real interesting cross-section of people that are out there. So we're going to keep sort of uh, rounding up more um, co-sponsors. We've had conversations with Speaker Pelosi's office and committee staff about hopefully getting a vote before the end of the calendar year. Mm -hmm. And um, there's a companion bill in the Senate uh, that Patty Murray, uh, senator from Washington State, has introduced. You know Senate's a little tougher uh political you know environment that's that's happening up there, but I will tell you this you know when we when we reported the bill out uh, of committee there were again there were some Republicans who were kind of just this staunch anti government you know don't like OSHA, but they were very muted because i you know this issue is not a red district blue district issue it it cuts across the whole country Mm -hmm. and you know everybody kind of knows somebody who's who's you know in the in that world and it's it's um it's a you know it's a thing will come up at a you know social event or a you know family event or whatever and um so i actually think it's got more legs than the sort of partisan you know divide that exists down there i mean i don't want to overstated you know what will happen in the senate but i'm very confident we're actually going to have a very respectable vote when it, when it comes up on the floor
2: Before we close, I just want to also mention, and I want to thank the entire Connecticut delegation for both the Senate and the House for 100% co-sponsoring the bills in their individual chambers. What I'd also like to know, Joe, is what can we do specifically as union members and health professionals to help push this bill through?
0: First of all, I mean, the the folks who called in with their stories and, and, you know, they need to keep doing that. Because as you know, John, one of the issues in the bill is whether or not we're going to have an interim rule during that 42-month waiting period that's there. And I think, you know, it's it's important to kind of really keep emphasizing that this, this issue is not some static sort of debate. It, it's happening in real time yeah, right. with more and more incidents. And, um, you know, I was telling one of your colleagues that uh, a gentleman walked into my office about two or three weeks ago from Louisiana. His sister was killed in a psychiatric hospital in Baton Rouge. And he drove all the way to Washington because, uh, yeah. you know, very well-dressed— um, you know articulate um, guy n- not political at all right. but he just was so still distraught over what happened to his sister who um, you know again was just doing her job right, uh, right. And, and that happened uh, actually two weeks after our hearing yeah. that you attended down in Washington which again it just shows that yeah. you know an interim role has got to be it's in important. place there we got to move on this right
1: this has been so helpful, Joe. Your understanding of grassroots activism is a big part of why you're getting things done in a place, well, let's be honest, that has a little bit of a reputation <laughs> yeah. for a gridlock right now. So we want to thank you um, for sharing your passion, your experience, and your knowledge for this discussion. We so appreciate you taking the time while you're back home in, in the district to sit down and talk to us. And on behalf of our members, thank you for always making our worker safety a priority. Well, thanks, thank Janet. Thank and John Thank
0: you to AFT, because, you, again, you've been right at the front of the pack here in terms of moving this issue.
1: John, I really appreciate you joining me for this discussion. It wouldn't have been the same without your perspective.
2: I'm most glad to do it. I'm glad you asked me. I can't think of a better example of what the UNI and Union Campaign is all about than fighting for safer workplaces.
1: Absolutely. Finally, I wanna thank our members for listening to AFT in Action. I hope the conversation inspires you to get involved or be more active in the fight for safe jobs. And I hope you'll send us your questions for the next episode. Where we'll focus our final workplace violence discussion on pre K 12 public schools. Members, please send your questions or feedback by email to actnetreply at aftct.org. That's A C T N E T R E P L Y at sign aftct.org. Plus, you can leave a message with your comments or questions by dialing 860 257-9782 and asking for extension 116. Again, that was 860-257-9782 extension 116. And thank you for all you do. That's a wrap for this latest edition of AFT in Action. Additional episodes are available at our
0: Podbean page and social media channels, all of which can be found at aftct.org. Like what you heard? Then share with fellow members and encourage they give it a listen too
1: and help build the power of the UNI in Union.